Well, friends, I want to invite you guys to turn over to Exodus chapter 19. We're going to be looking at uh, the first few verses in this chapter this morning. And this passage actually brings us to a really crucial turning point in our series through Exodus. We're skipping ahead a little bit. You know, the last time we saw the Israelites, they were in the wilderness, complaining about their hunger and their thirst, being taught by God day in, day out to trust Him for everything that they need. They've been in the wilderness for the last couple of chapters. They fought a a great battle that God gave them to win. They've worked through what it would look like to, to manage the needs of the people on the, from, from the top down through Moses and some elders that he establishes. That that's where they've been since we left them. Where they've come, and the passage we're going to cover this morning, is to Sinai, to a mountain known as the mountain of God. A mountain where God meets with his people to talk to them about who he is and about what it looks like to follow him, about what it looks like to embrace his ways as your ways and to see from experience the goodness and beauty that comes from trusting him as the ruler of your life. That's what Sinai is about and it takes up the rest of the book. We're only into chapter 19 here, but the rest of the book, which is not even halfway over yet, happens at this spot on the slopes of this mountain where Israel meets the God who's redeemed them. In other words, this week sets up the next half of the series, and that makes this a really big week for us. What we've been saying about Exodus is that this is a story about God. It's a story told to us so that we know who God is, what God is like, what we can expect from him if we trust in him. Exodus is a story through which God shows the world who he is. How does he do that, though? Exodus has shown us that too. God shows the world who he is by setting his people free. He's chosen to use the redemption of his people from their bondage as his picture of who he is and what the world can expect from him if they'll trust him. At first, the threat that he had to deliver his people from was Egypt. They were in bondage to a hostile power who had claimed them for their own. They were, they were kept by a, an oppressive superpower who only saw them as an expendable resource. God put an end to that threat. He did that with an unprecedented display of power that we've been tracking together week by week by week, especially through the plagues that we tracked together a few weeks back and through the Red Sea from which he delivered them in, in, in what Shaka considered a couple weeks ago. We've seen God flex his muscles to set his people free from an oppressive power outside of them, an external slavery. But what we started to see last week, what we'll see more today, and what will set us up for what we see throughout the Ten Commandments series, is that uh, his people still aren't free. They're not up under the reign of Egypt anymore. That's true. They aren't under the thumb of this ruler who doesn't care about them. That's true. But they're not free yet. Most of Exodus, the majority of the book, and in a way the rest of the Old Testament, shows that Israel was still dealing with another kind of slavery. God intends to show the world who he is by setting his people free. That means he's got to set them free from external threats outside of them, trying to control their lives. But to show the world who he is by setting his people free, he's also got to set them free from the internal threats from their bondage to themselves, to their sin, to the desires that rule over them. 
with tyranny. So here's what you need to know. This is going to set us up for everything we cover in the Ten Commandments. True freedom, the kind of freedom God wants for his people, the kind of freedom that, that, giving his, that, that in giving to his people, this freedom, he shows the world who he is. It's more than autonomy. It's not just setting them free from what was outside of them, controlling them so that they can go and be who they want to be, so they can go and define life for themselves and, and, and make what they can out of, their, out of their lives. It's more than that. In other words, it's more than just freedom from. True freedom is more than just freedom from something out there. True freedom is freedom for a specific way of life that is good, that leads to flourishing, that honors God, and is, and is good for us. That's the kind of freedom God wants for his people, and it's the kind of freedom we start to see and clear, come into a clear picture in this passage. True freedom comes not through autonomy. True freedom comes through trust and through obedience. To be free, we have to trust him to be for us. That was last week in the wilderness. He was teaching his people that. And to be free, we have to obey him. That's this week. That's the rest of our series, and that's the point of, the, of, of Israel's experience at Sinai. So what we're going to do today is try to set us up for what we'll do the next 10 weeks after today. After today, we leave the stories behind. All the stories we've considered up through Exodus have been setting us up for what we're going to do the next 10 weeks, which is one commandment per week through one of the most famous sections of the Bible, the Ten Commandments. We're going to try to understand why these commands that God gives to his people are good. We're going to try to understand what it is in us that keeps us back from these commands. We're going to try to understand how God has, has sent his own son to perfectly obey these commands so that we could be forgiven for our disobedience. And we're going to think about how God gives us, through his spirit, the power to obey and to enjoy the freedom that he wants for us. We're going to set up all of that this morning through looking at the opening of, of Exodus chapter 19. Now, uh, I'm only going to cover the first few verses of this chapter because, because what we want to do here, again, is use this, this section as a setup for everything that comes later. So I'm going to be a little bit more like above the ground here rather than in the nitty-gritty of the details of the story, talking about the principles going on here and about what we're supposed to get out of this section of Exodus. So I'm mainly going to focus on just a few verses, actually. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9 of Exodus chapter 19, but then most of our time this morning, we're going to spend trying to understand verses 4 to 6. Now, what I want to do again is read the first nine verses. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. I'm going to pick up in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. This, friends, is the word of the Lord to us. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if indeed you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. This is God's word. You can be seated. There are two things that I want us to talk about this morning from Exodus 19 that are going to set up how we understand why God gives the rules to his people that he's about to give to his people. How these rules connect back to the freedom God has been bringing to his people from the beginning of this book. I want you to see from this chapter and from what comes next in our series how we are set free for obedience. And I want you to see how we are set free by grace. Set free for obedience. That's first. And how in order to get that, we need to understand that we are set free by grace and only grace. Now, first, let me tell you about this obedience piece. This is going to be big for us from this point forward. Israel, as we just read, they've reached the mountain of God. We knew this moment was coming. Back when God met with Moses at the burning bush to tell him everything that was going to happen, and Moses is wondering, how can I trust that you're really going to do all that you've said? God says to him in Exodus 3, verse 12, You'll know when I bring you back to this mountain with your people. Then you'll know. And here we are. We've known this moment was coming because when Moses went to Pharaoh, what he was told to tell Pharaoh was, let my people go so that they can come and serve me. Pharaoh knew this was the point. Moses knew this was always the point. And now here we are at the foot of the mountain where Israel will learn what their God has in store for them. What they'll learn, in other words, what it'll look like to have him among them as their God. In verses 5 and 6 of what I just read, we get what you might think of as the purpose statement for the Exodus. Behind all of that God has just done, behind the tremendous acts of power that he has used to set his people free from their bondage, behind all of it comes the purpose that, that, that we see in verses 5 and 6. I have brought you out, he says. Therefore, therefore, if you will obey and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. You will be, he says, putting it differently, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's your purpose. He's giving Israel a mission statement here. This is what he's brought them out for. And it's a mission that fits with what God has been doing throughout the story so far. I want to make sure you can understand why. So, do you remember the main theme that we've been saying about the Exodus from the beginning? The main theme is that everyone watching should know who the Lord is. That phrase, that they may know, that they may know, that they may know. It's all through the story. God is showing the world something true about himself. That same theme is right here. He showed something already through crushing the enemies of his people. Now he's going to show something through the life of his people. 
He's going to give Israel his law. This is his prescription for the good life. And if they keep his law, he's telling them, then they'll show the rest of the world what it looks like to live with God among you as your God, to trust him and obey him. That's what it means when he says that you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So priests are go-betweens. They represent God to the people. So if Israel is to be a nation of priests, they represent their God to the world. If the world wants to know who God is and what to expect from him, they can look to Israel. Israel will be a holy nation, not in an isolated sense that don't come in here, you can't touch us, we are not for you, but in a, in a, in a set apart for display sense. Come and look at us and what it looks like to obey God as your way of life. You can see the beauty of trusting and obeying him in our life together, and it can be yours too. It's a missionary purpose that God has given his people. And at the heart of that will be his law, his commands that show them how to show the world what God is like. It isn't hard for us to cheer for Israel's release from Egypt. Uh, We don't like to see the weak oppressed by the strong. And we're right to want that kind of tyranny and that kind of exploitation to to be stopped wherever it's found. But it is also possible for us, friends, I think especially... In 21st century America, it's also possible for us for the same reason that we don't like tyranny where we see it. It's possible for us to also dislike rules where we see them. It's possible for us to oppose oppression and by the same impulse want to see the liberated able to make whatever choices they want to make for their lives, to choose their own path, to define for themselves what a good life looks like. It's possible, in other words, for us to get half of Exodus and be rah-rah all the way along and then get to the next half of Exodus and be like, hey, whoa, 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 we didn't sign up for that. That sounds like more oppression to me, these rules. That seems like a lot like what Israel had in, in Egypt. I think, first of all, we just need to know that about ourselves so that we can see if that's the way we're reacting, if that's the intuition that's rising up as we get to this section where God gives commands. We need to, we need to just, first of all, just acknowledge up front that our intuitions are different from the instincts that the Bible would cultivate in us. That actually what we're going to see together in the next part of our series is a different view of freedom than the one we are, we are taught to embrace freedom from outside threats is always going to be incomplete god sets us free for and and before we move on i just want to make sure two reasons for this are clear to you why this freedom for a specific way of life is is part of god's agenda for his people both of them come out of this text both of them come not just out of the first few verses of exodus 19 but out of the whole thing that we've been looking at so far the first reason it's good, the first reason that, that, that God won't let us stop at freedom from outside threats, but also gives us a freedom for his particular way of life that he's called us to, is that it's good for us. It's good for us to embrace his ways. I mean, to, to stop only at freedom from and only think about like no one getting to tell us what or who to be that underestimates how we can live as slaves to ourselves, 
to our own views of what's best, to our own limited capacities for what's possible. If, if we're really left to ourselves, that's not a good place to be. That leaves on our shoulders the weight of knowing what to do with our lives. The weight of knowing what's, what's best to, to, to function in a healthy way. That's not a weight we were ever meant to carry, friends, and it can crush us when we try to carry it. God's law was meant to set Israel free from that burden, from knowing what's best. He wants to use his commands to show his people how to flourish because he loves them, because that's good. GPS has come a long way in recent years, thankfully. I am uh, old enough, though, to remember before I had GPS. Believe it or not, I can't remember that. And I remember, as a, just, just, just as a little example of how, of how GPS has enhanced our freedom through the rules that it gives us. I remember, uh, I think this was about 10 years ago. I was in graduate school. I was on a trip to an archive to dig through some dusty old documents. I flew into Philadelphia, and I had to take the turnpike up towards New York City to get to Madison, New Jersey, where there was a specific archive that I needed at a university there. And I was on this turnpike, and everything was going great because for, because for about an hour outside of Philly, it's pretty just wide open, lots of lanes. You're seeing a lot of beautiful country, what have you. And then I start to get into the city. And all I've got for my navigation are Google Maps printouts from my computer. That's what I had. I had no GPS device at this point. I probably could have. Ten years ago, they, they would have had such things, but I was too cheap to order the extra on my rental car. I can handle this. So I've got these Google Maps printouts scattered on the passenger seat. I'm alone. And I'm on the turnpike, which is like 12 lanes total, maybe, maybe more. And I'm shuffling through trying to figure out which page am I actually on. And the signs are starting to come at me fast. And it wasn't rush hour, but it was close. So there's cars everywhere at high speed. So lots of cars, but actually we're not going slow. We're going really fast. And then you realize, oh, I'm supposed to get off here, but that's six lanes that way. And it's on the opposite side than what I thought it should have been on. Who puts an exit over here on the left? I'm I'm rifling through this all alone in this high-stress situation. I am not free or flourishing in that moment. And, you know, I've griped about GPS as much as the next guy over the years, but I'll be honest, it works pretty well right now. They've come a long way on this technology so that now not only is it going to tell you what to do when. It's going to speak it to you so you don't have to read anything. And not only is it going to speak to you what you should do when, it's going to tell you, it's going to tell you in advance what lane you need to be and how far before that lane approaches and whether or not there are traffic hazards on the way to that lane. So you're just cruising along, just listening to that nice British accent tell you exactly what to do. It's freeing to have rules. In fact, the opposite of what the GPS does was not freedom at all. I was on my own. I could do it the way I thought best, but I was not qualified for that responsibility. And it cost me to bear it. God knows that that's true about all of us, that that there is a burden to knowing what to do with your life that we are not equipped to carry. It isn't good. And so he provides his ways. Not only does he want to free us from that burden, he wants us to flourish. He wants our lives to be happy. He wants to give us the freedom 
the joy that comes from embracing his way. So I think in, in the scriptures, this one, one way of, this, of, of describing this freedom for is just as an environment that his laws create, a, a, an environment of safety and protection inside of which, yes, we're bounded. Yes, we can't go out here. We can't decide where we want to be or who we want to go. But inside of which, we have the freedom to just enjoy life. I think back, um, I may have used this example before, but one, one place that I've seen this dynamic play out that's always struck me as helpful for understanding how the Bible talks about rules and how good they are for us. Uh, it, it, also back in grad school, the place that I would park um, was uh, the Wesley Place Garage. A lot of you guys have probably parked over there at some point or had, had that, that decal that you overpaid for. Uh, but but provided you with some convenient parking access on Vandy's campus. Uh, on my way to get to that parking garage, I would always go by this um, Vandy childcare facility on Edge Hill Avenue. Um, and right up next to Edge Hill, which is a busy road, a lot of cars moving fast down that road, right up next to it was their playground. And so driving by, you know, sometimes it's a nice day, you got the windows rolled down, you can hear the kids out there just having a ball, like laughing, running around, playing, they're swinging, they're sliding, they're having a ball. You know what makes them able to just enjoy being there in safety and in flourishing? Really high fences, right, that protect them from the busy traffic coming down Edge Hill Avenue. It's that fence, that hedge, that protection that creates the flourishing that they're enjoying, the safety and peace. That's the freedom. that They're living with freedom on that playground. And that's the kind of freedom that God wants for us, but that can only come when we embrace his ways. He wants us to be free for a specific way of life that his commands are meant to teach us. The commands God's about to give Israel and the commands that he gives to us through his word are good for us. Obeying these commands won't be a straitjacket holding you back from a good life. These, pan, these plans are your path to goodness and beauty and full flourishing. So what you need to know about this freedom for agenda we're going to be considering together is that it is good for us. There's another thing you need to know about it. It's also good for the world. By the world here, I mean those who are outside of God's people, those who are not trusting in God for, for what they need and, and, and those who, who could be if they would. It's good for the world to see the freedom and flourishing that comes from embracing God's ways. What we know about nature is that it's red in tooth and claw. For all of its beauty, it's ugly too and brutal. And not just the natural world where you know, predators eat prey. Human history is full of that kind of oppression. And not just the large-scale oppressions Personal relationships, too. See, friends, if we only do what we want, if we just follow our desires wherever they take us, you know what happens? People get hurt. That's what happens. People get hurt. We steal. We covet. We wound. We clash with each other's interests in a host of ways that all of us have lived through and been guilty of, and they're going to come up again and again in God's law. God's law is full of prescriptions for how to treat one another, rooted in the experiences of what it is to be treated just based on desire. Israel's life together was meant to show another way. It was meant as a kind of invitation or advertisement 
for what it looks like to live together as servants of the same loving and all-knowing and wise and good Lord. Isaiah would take up this theme. And Isaiah 49, here's what Isaiah 49 says. You, speaking God, speaking to Israel, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Do you see that? In you, I'm going to say something about me. I'm going to glorify my name, my goodness and beauty in the world through you. He says, he goes on, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Do you see that? Israel's way of life together, freed from what comes natural, embracing these rules, will be a light to the nations, an advertisement, a billboard of what the nations can experience if they too will trust in Israel's God. One of the things we're going to be saying a good bit throughout our series on the Ten Commandments starting next week is that this is part of a covenant that God made with Israel. It is part of their time and their place. And the church is not under the same covenant that Israel was under. So in a sense, what we're looking at is is part of the past. And we'll have to do some translation work to learn from it at our time and our place as Christians. A lot of things have changed when Jesus came and lived and died and rose. But I'll tell you this, one thing didn't change with the coming of Jesus. One thing remains as true for us as it, as it was for Israel. And in this thing, the Ten Commandments still serve us. It's this, God's people are still meant to tell the truth about him through the way they relate to one another. That part's still true. God's people are meant to tell the truth about him to the world through how they treat one another. And our mission on earth is to make God's goodness known to everybody. And one way we do that is by obedience to his commands for what is right and true and beautiful. Jesus says this, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 19, you will be a light. Why? So that they may see your good works and think you are awesome and wish they could be like, no. So they can see your good works and feel guilty about how terrible they are. No, no, no. So they can see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. He talks about grace. It's only by grace that anyone gets saved. They only claim that grace through faith. But why has he saved us by grace through faith? For good works prepared for you beforehand. And maybe the best example of all, we covered this in our series in 1 Peter last fall. Peter quotes from the text we've just read in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's talking about the purpose of the church's life together in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's talking about overall that the church is supposed to be this alien community, sojourners living in one country, belonging to another, showing through how they hope and how they live, showing the rest of the world what it looks like to, to, to come to Jesus for healing and redemption. And after talking about all that for a while, Peter basically quotes from our text in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, verse 9, you are a chosen race. Talking to the church. You are a royal priesthood. Does that sound familiar? You are a holy nation, straight out of Exodus 19. A people for his own possession, Exodus 19. Why? Why has God made us his own? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Same mission. 
given to the church. And the way we take it up is by looking to God's ways and embracing them. Obedience matters, friends. And not in addition to the freedom of the gospel. Not as this tack-on after the gospel has made us free. Obedience matters as part of the freedom of the gospel. Obedience is part of what it is to be set free from sin and death. So we are set free for obedience. That's the first thing I want you to notice about the setup here in Exodus 19. And that theme is going to come up over and over and over again for the next 10 weeks. This is where we park. But if we're going to do that well, if we're going to talk about the importance of obedience and not be derailed by it, if we're to hear this call to obedience and not have it land on us like a crushing weight, if, in other words, we're going to avoid being led right back into another form of slavery through this call to obedience, then we need to know something else about this context, about Exodus 19 and about the rest of the Bible. See, friends, there's a default impulse in us that could lead us straight back into a different kind of slavery. To avoid that, we need to know how grace leads to obedience. We need to know that we're set free by grace. There's two bad ways to respond to the commands we're about to consider together. And we're about to spend two plus months in commands. There's going to be two really bad ways to respond that all of us are going to be tempted to. I want to tell you what those are and why grace frees us from those bad ways to respond. Why it matters, in other words, that we are set free by grace. So here's the first way we might poorly respond to the commands that we're going to consider. We might see those commands as a way that we earn good things from God. In other words, we we might see these commands as just confirmation of our natural bent in life anyway, and that is to think that you only get what you pay for. That in relationships in particular, you will only have as much goodness and favor as you can rent, and only as long as you keep up with the payments. Maybe, in fact, friends, maybe you've lived in relationships where that has actually been true. People who are important to you, whose whose opinion of you mattered, who you needed things from, who, who you feel kept you always wondering where you stood with them based on how you treated them. You may have lived that way throughout your entire childhood. And that may have just conditioned you even more to think that that's how God looks at you. Some of us, therefore, are going to struggle with fear when we hear commands and guilt because we don't know we measure up. Others of us might be a little more confident. For us, we're going to think that we maybe think that we do obey and that therefore God owes us. That actually, because of our obedience, we should be able to expect things on our terms from God. Either one of those approaches, that the kind of guilt and fear conditioned, I'll only have as much as I paid for, I don't know where I stand with him, or I have paid, therefore I need what I've paid, I deserve what I've paid for from God. Either one of those imposes a kind of transactional idea that our relationship with God is based on transaction, where we get what we pay for, he owes us what we've paid for. And in this sort of arrangement, we 
we hold on to control, even over God. We're the ones in the driver's seat of that kind of relationship. That's the way I think our default mode teaches us to approach commands. And I'll be honest, um, in what we've just read, you could actually see something of that in these verses. You could actually read these verses as a confirmation of what you already take for granted, that there's a condition in place that if you don't meet it, God won't be for you. If you will indeed obey my voice, God says, verse 5. If you will obey and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. There is a condition there, right in the middle of it. And this place right here, friends, this is where it matters that we pay attention to the bigger context of Exodus and the importance of free grace that's already been built in to the very foundation of God's relationship to them. Did you notice verse 4? Before the condition comes, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In other words, look at the grace I've just showed you now, therefore. Because I've brought you to me in this relationship based on sheer grace, if you will obey, then you will be. Here's how one Old Testament scholar put it. Yeah, there's a condition here. It's expressed as a condition, he says, but not of gaining God's redemption. That's already happened. But of fulfilling the mission that their identity lays on them. These verses are not about how to get God's grace in your life. They're about what God's grace does with your life when he's claimed it. The condition is about whether or not they will be able to fulfill what God has given them to do, to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, so that when others look at them, they'll know what God is like. It's only through embracing his laws that they can have that role in the world. When they reject his laws, they tell lies about who God is. God doesn't get the glory that he's meant to get through their life together. The condition is about their purpose, not about the fundamental relationship God has already built with them by his grace. Here's here's what I mean. It is God's grace that has listened to their cries. It is God's grace that has come to them in their distress. It is God's grace that has crushed the powers over them. It is God's grace that has fed them in the wilderness. It is God's grace that has brought them here to himself because he loves them as his people. And all of that grace comes before the first command to obey. The relationship exists already. The condition is about their mission. Because only through obedience, only through embracing God's ways can they show the world what it looks like to live from trust in Him. Friends, that principle that's playing out right here, just in these few verses, of grace first, relationship with God, leading to obedience that flows out of trust in His goodness, that that's playing out right here in Israel's life is also meant to play out in the life of the church. Because the same principles are built into the heart of the gospel. One of the best places to see this in action is in Paul's letter to the Romans. It begins by, by making it clear that everyone from everywhere has fallen short of God's glory. It starts with people who didn't have the law but still had it written on their hearts. Romans chapter 1 is about the conscience that all of us have, that it doesn't work perfectly. It's not like it's not affected by sin, but all of us know that there are certain things that are not good for us to do, that we resent when other people do them, that we're still guilty of doing. 
And as he's, as he's prying in here on, on the Gentiles who do not know God, you can almost hear the Jews in the background, the, uh, Paul's readers, cheering him on. Yeah, get them. That's right. Those Gentiles, they should have known better. And then in chapter 2, he turns to the Jews and he says, even those who have the law haven't kept it. There's no one righteous. No, not one, he quotes from the Old Testament, which has taught them to expect this. And it all builds up to chapter 3, where he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is only one hope for anyone to be right with God, to be justified in their life. That hope is that their sin has been put onto Jesus, who has paid it down completely and left no debt unfulfilled and who has now set them free. What? To go live life on their terms? Well, you read this together earlier, friends, in Romans 6. Shall we say that sin should abound so that grace abounds too? No! Are you kidding? You've been crucified with Christ. You're dead to sin. You're alive now to him and to his ways, his goodness. The same principles that are laid out here in Exodus 19 are at the heart of the gospel that we cling to as our only hope in life and in death. God has been for us when we were his enemies. And part of what it is for him to be for us is for him to set us free by his spirit to be what he always intended for us to be, to know the freedom and goodness of trusting his ways. Friends, if you're here this morning and you don't think you're good enough to be a Christian, I hope you'll hear that is foolishness. Only because God has told you that it is. He does not expect you to be better than you are before you experience his grace and mercy in your life. And when you come to him for grace and mercy, he promises he won't leave you like he found you, but he will set you free to be who you always were meant to be. One bad way of responding to these commands would be to see them as a kind of, as a kind of uh, list of things we've got to do, a payment we've got to offer to earn favor from God. That is not what they are. The last thing I want to leave you with, though, is another way we can another another way we can poorly respond to these commands. I think this is one that we're just as tempted to, if not more so, right now. We could see the commands that God gives us as a new kind of repression or even oppression. We could see God giving us rules, giving us a definition of who we are and how we should live as another kind of straitjacket, another outside mold forcing us into its shape, another power that doesn't know you or take your uniqueness into account, shaping you into the same shape as everybody else, basically flattening out who you are. You could see his commands that way as if obedience to him would mean holding you back from being you, from living a true, authentic life. If that's the way we see his commands, it'll feel like a bait and switch. Like God ostensibly is for us, trying to set us free, but then just imposes a new regime on us. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. If you're reacting that way to the idea of, of rules given to you for who you are, then I'll, I'll first say that you're not wrong about the claim to authority that's built in here. That's actually there. What you're seeing here is God claiming to have the right to define your life for you and to shape it towards his purposes. God calls Israel here in verse 5 his possession. In the beginning of the story, he said this same thing to Pharaoh. He said to Pharaoh, they're not yours, they're mine. And I want them to come out and serve me. 
And I get, friends, that in our experience of authority like this, we've experienced baggage. That authority, in our experience, comes with a kind of baggage and a fear of abusive authority. Maybe you've actually even experienced more examples of abusive authority in your life than of healthy authority in your life. And if you have, you're not wrong to wonder, how can I know this authority is trustworthy? How can I know I can just embrace the rule of God over my life and not stay in evaluation mode, always picking and choosing which commands are good for me and which ones aren't? How can I know this authority is trustworthy? Friends, that is a crucial question. You are right to ask it. And the only answer to that question, the only way you can know that this, tr- this authority is trustworthy is grace. God grounds everything he tells his people to do in what he has already done for them. You were there. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. I carried you like an eagle carries a baby on his back all the way to me because I love you. So obey me. The only way you know this is trustworthy authority is grace. That you've been set free by grace. Yes, Israel is God's possession, not their own. Yes, if you want to be part of God's people, that means you do have to die to life on your terms. Yes, it means you got to stop picking and choosing which parts of the Bible you like and which parts of the Bible you don't. But being possessed by somebody else doesn't have to be a bad thing. There's a huge difference between, between being possessed as a slave and being possessed as a son or a daughter. Remember back at the beginning of this showdown between God and Pharaoh, it was framed like that. Whose are they, Really? Pharaoh thought they were his. They're mine. I'm not letting them go. You remember the language God used to confront Pharaoh in Exodus 4.23? Let my son go that he may serve me. For Pharaoh, possession of the people meant they were dispensable to him, usable for his ends. He possessed the people like I possess a bottle of Dr. Pepper. You drink it down to the last drop for my pleasure. That's what kind of possession they were to Pharaoh. Do you see what kind of possession they are to God? You will be my treasured possession. Everything I do is with an eye to your protection and your preservation, to your flourishing and your security. They are his possession. And if you will be his possession, yes, it means you can't define your life anymore. But it also means you are his treasure, so you don't need to. Everybody's got to serve somebody. But to end with Romans, where we touched earlier, Paul says in Romans 8, we are now debtors not to live according to the flesh, to the natural desires we come with, doing whatever we want. That way ends in death. But Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, he says, are sons of God, freed for sonship. 
For you did not receive, Paul says, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoptions as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, and know he hears us, loves us, and is attentive to our every need. Friends, that is the freedom God wants for you. Freedom for life as his people. We're going to pray now that God will help us through his word to embrace this vision for our lives together. Father, we know that there's much in us that resists it. This goodness and beauty of your ways, we pray that by your power, through your spirit, we would come to see the beauty of what you've put in front of us, to understand what these rules mean, to see how we might apply them, and not to shrink back from them, but to enter in with trust in you, knowing that you have already done everything necessary for us to be clean and whole, Why would you now give us commands that only want to hold us back? We pray that we would trust you as the one who treasures us and embrace everything you say, whether we understand it or not. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.